That's it. That's what. What's the idea? Well, what's the big idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea, Egghead? What's the big idea? Welcome back to What's the Big Idea. Today's show is a treat. I sat down with John O'Connor, who is one of the most gifted coaches and facilitators um, I've had the privilege of learning from and spending time with. So I sat in a session with John O'Connor and probably eight other men who are active, kind of as leaders in the men's work, men's retreat space. And uh, John brought not only this just very profound skill to the work, but also this kind of reverence and levity of just enjoying himself, having fun with it that I, I so deeply connected with. And when we got to sit down, you know, I scheduled about an hour, but we ended up talking for two hours and it really just flowed because, you know, he's he's mastered so many different modalities, whether that is, you know, going into neurolinguistic programming to somatic inquiry and kind of integrating your emotions more consciously into your actions. So he has a really incredible story and this is a, a wide ranging conversation, but all centers on his big idea. Um, which is all around kind of releasing our idea of what should be happening, trying to find a solution to problems, and just getting real with what is. And it was so hard for him to articulate what is the big idea because he just wanted to come in and say, look, it will, it will emerge, it will happen uh, if we just sit down, look each other in the eyes. And lo and behold, it absolutely did. And this is really what so much of John's work focuses on is just becoming supremely present, getting out of your own way and just feeling through what's happening right now and really kind of has turned that into a skill of how do we extract the wisdom from the present moment, what we are feeling um, to really kind of fuel our lives forward, to make better decisions, to be more creative. So I love this conversation. He is a truly great man. And uh, if you're enjoying What's the Big Idea, once you're done listening to this one with John, just mosey on over to iTunes, to Spotify, wherever you might be listening, and drop us a review. We love doing this show, and uh, these reviews are always nice to check in, see what you guys are enjoying. So without further ado, the great John O'Connor do it all right well after a little bit of hustle and bustle and moving around <laughs> we are getting this thing started john o'connor welcome to what's the big idea thank you and we got fantastic views of the empire state building and is that the freedom tower that's what do we got down there got down there can't tell what do you think yeah. should we should we leave this window open so that we have some of the new york city sounds yeah. now let's what do you think should we close it oh uh, yeah I'd probably close here, it. you close that and i'm going to tell people exactly why you are here so you know, one of the things that I do with guests on What's the Big Idea is I will tell them why I'm excited to have them here. And everyone I have on uh, thematically is someone who I'm, I'm genuinely excited to get to know more deeply, who has ideas that I respect and want to understand. Um, and about probably five months ago, I got to sit with uh, John and about seven other men who are leaders, facilitators, coaches in the men's workspace. And John did this training, basically sitting with all these men, telling him a little more about his process and the work that he does. And one of the things that I got to experience in that session was a lot. And I got a lot of value from it, like very practical 
progress in my own relationship with Mickey, but also I experienced this, uh, what I would call depth, reverence and levity from his work of, it was just so obvious that he, he loved what he was doing. He loved being in this room, training the trainers that he, at the same time, while taking it so seriously and honoring the work was also like laughing and having fun and like making fun of himself. And so to, to hold both of those lines, um, with whatever line of work you're in is something that I just, I really connected to. And I was very excited to have you on the show to go a little deeper into some of the work that you're bringing into the world. So welcome. That's great. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited to be here. I've been enjoying your podcast. I've been going <laughs> through them all. Um, it's interesting that you say that. And I, I appreciate the feedback because sometimes, and we talked about this in the training, a lot of times we can't, we see ourselves through the lens of other people. Right. And I noticed that in group work and even in men's group work, um, a lot of who we are gets reflected back to us. Yeah. And um, so I, I like hearing feedback in terms of how other people experience me because one of the intentions or one of the things I train is when I take a look at like activating leaders, I take a look at like three states of being or qualities that we like to tap and it's being fierce, being playful and being tender. Hmm. And if you think about a leader or a business person or even like a partner and they're fierce and they're playful but they're not tender right it starts to feel like abusive hmm. right if you take a look at someone or a leader who's very playful and they're very tender and they care and they really like you but they can't speak the truth they can't call things out they can't talk to the elephant in the room you don't have respect for them hmm. you know so it's really balancing these three qualities of like being able to speak your truth in a way that has heart and has a bit of lightness to it yeah i just find to be the most powerful and, and i practice that with my son when I'm disciplining him, I mean, I do it perfectly, maybe 30% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, um, but it's in that training, that was one of my intentions was really to model what it's like to be a facilitator or a coach or, and to be playful, yeah. but to be fierce and to have that tenderness at the same time. Yeah. F-P-T, fierce, playful. And tender. Tender. Yeah. So where did that come from? Is that um, It's one of my mentors, actually, Stephen Gilligan. Um, so I'm trained as a hypnotherapist. I'm trained as an NLP trainer. So um, the past couple of years, I've been working with this guy who is one of Milton Erickson's students who's taken his work and developed it a little bit more. So Milton really believed in bypassing your conscious mind and really working with the unconscious to create change. Yeah. So he would do all these different ways of kind of like blocking out the, the conscious mind. Where Stephen's approach is beautiful because his is all about having a, co a conversation between your conscious and unconscious mind hmm. that, you know, you don't want to knock out the conscious mind. You want it to be present and have it engaged in the process. And that really has taken my work so much more deeper. He really has opened up portals to new work, like new activated more potential in me from just being with him and watching how he works. So I'm curious because I, I can kind of track you when you talk about having a conversation between the conscious and the subconscious mind, but mm -hmm. for people who may not be as well versed in kind of these types of coaching or therapeutic kind of mm -hmm. modalities and, and hypnosis, how would you help someone understand what that looks like? If you think about a conversation between the conscious and the subconscious, what does that, what does that look like for people? Well, I mean, have you ever had the experience of saying you were going to do something or not do something and then doing it anyway? Sure. 
or you know you make a commitment you're like i'm going to do just this just now by the way i told myself i wasn't going to do two coffees for all of january and i did one today because i was working <laughs> on our house all day and i was like man i need another coffee yeah so what happens i mean from how i understand it how i've been trained around it is like you know 95% of what we're doing is is in the unconscious it's like in this in the filters it's in the neurology it's in the nervous system yeah and where people struggle is where they try to consciously not they try to consciously change and then they they're fighting with this pattern that keeps happening over and over again mm -hmm. i'm not going to drink i'm not going to smoke i'm um i'm not going to get upset or i'm going to be more open and curious and then totally. something happens and boom there's this pattern that emerges so i think just becoming aware of um slowing down dropping in and you know when we talk about connecting with the unconscious is opening up the channels to to the kind of control center or the control box where everything is kind of emerging from. Beautiful, man. Yeah. And so tell us a little more about what got you, what was the first spark of interest where you talk about being trained as a, a hypnotist or trained in hypnosis? What was the first spark in your life where you felt called to explore this type of work of coaching, hypnosis, you know, whatever modalities first? What was the first moment where you for, were like... For the coaching work? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So before I got into coaching, I've been coaching for about a decade now. Yeah. And prior to that, uh, I was a body worker for 16 years. Yeah. So I got into massage therapy work when I was 20, 21. And that emerged really out of my own trauma as a kid so when i was eight my sister and i she was four walking on a sidewalk and this my mother went into a um, to go shopping and we were just playing on the sidewalk and there was a woman who was driving her car whose kids were fighting in the back seat and so she you know leant back to you know stop the kids from from fighting and she hit the gas pedal and she hit a parked car and the parked car hit my sister and i uh she got pinned against the pole i got thrown clear hmm. And so an impact, her leg was amputated. Mm. So here I am as an eight-year-old boy watching my little sister on the ground having just been struck by a car. And like at that moment, like my whole entire body froze. You know, I went into panic mode. And it's interesting as I say that too because, you know, the nature of memories in trauma is very tr strange because like even like even as I say that I'm like did I get hit I don't even know if I got hit I just I remember being on the ground and getting up and not having a scratch on me so I don't even know if I was touched by the car I have no idea yeah. I just remember waking up on that floor um, and seeing her laying there and uh, at that moment you know here there's a physical wound that my sister has she had a leg amputated from the hip down mm. and I didn't have anything so all the attention, focus, and care was on my sister who needed it at the time. It was, you know, an acute, tragic thing. And so for months, she needed a tremendous amount of support and help and guidance and, and care. Um, but I think, you know, with trauma, it's, there's this unseen wound. So I had this deep scar that I had no idea happened. You know, I had no idea what was going on as an eight-year-old boy. I was a little tough guy at the time. So I'm like, oh, I'm okay. I can handle it. I could be on my yeah. own, you know. And uh, it wasn't until like in my teens where I started to have these kind of awakenings. You know, I started to have like a spiritual awakening of some sort and realizing like, you know, through drugs and alcohol, actually, I always say marijuana saved me as a kid because it helped me pop out of my, my trauma trance, so to speak. But I, um, I got into massage, I think unconsciously at the time because 
either I was trying to heal myself, heal others. There was this deep sense of responsibility and guilt around the accident because I was with her. I was supposed to be watching her on the sidewalk. And so even though it wasn't my fault, you know, there was some element as an eight-year-old boy feeling responsible. Hmm. And so I just remember, you know, working with people and just having this deep, uncanny sense of being able to touch someone, know where their pain is, and being able to help them shift. Wow. And I did that for 16 years, like, you know, 16,000 bodies I've touched. Jeez. And, uh, and so what I noticed... Can, work, I, can I ask one question yeah. while you're there, actually? Because I think that, that it, for, for any of you there have had that experience of working with a body worker who touches you and understands something that's happening. Like, I've seen that especially with my wife mm. when she went through a really traumatic experience. And, and being with a body worker who came and the first place he, he looked at her, he looked at her once, he sat her down and he was like, I know what you need. And he just touched her one place in like her shoulder braid and she just started bawling. Mm -hmm. And I, and I had, and I had chills talking mm -hmm. about it because unlike anything that I've ever seen before, and I couldn't explain, it was almost mystical mm -hmm. the way that he looked at her while she was standing up with clothes on mm -hmm. and just knew. Yeah. And so I'm almost crying talking about it because it was so profound. But what, how did you, because even at that age, you know, to accept and acknowledge a, like a gift like that, mm. how did that one occur like to you? And like, to when be did you massage you, therapist? Yeah. To, you know, like, I think it you, came out of like a desperation at the time. I mean, I had gone to three colleges and looking back and working with some of the experts that I work with now, like I had a total uh, language processing issue that was never diagnosed, never dealt with. I had an auditory processing dysfunction where I didn't process sound properly. Mm. So like it, I, my brain wasn't encoding what I was hearing. And so looking back now, like looking at what the intervention is for children who have language processing issues, executive functioning issues, auditory processing stuff, there's so much intervention now early, but you know, back in the seventies and eighties, we didn't have that sure. or I wasn't exposed to it. My parents didn't know anything about that. Yeah. And so, um, so I had gone through three colleges and after the, th I fell out of the third one, I was, um, I started, a, uh, I got involved in a multi-level marketing company selling air filters and water filters. <laughs> and I somehow got my grandfather and my father to invest tens of thousands of dollars. So I had a basement full of water filters. And so, uh, at, you know, 1920, I was like, I'm going to retire rich at 30. I'm going to be a millionaire. I got sucked into this whole kind of whirlwind of like entrepreneurship, you know, in the multi-level marketing space. Sure. And, um, lo and behold, I was many thousands of dollars in debt. Yeah. Uh, and it took me like seven years to get out of that debt of what I had accrued. But I just remember being at a really low point, uh, you know, 20, 21 years old, having no college education, no real skill sets, not really quite sure what the heck I was going to do. And I remember sitting on the beach, you know, I think I spent a couple of weeks on the beach um, talking to the ocean, just really soul searching. Yeah. And it just like, it came in as an idea. It's like, oh, I'm going to go to massage. I think my sister had a friend who was in massage school and I was like, I'm going to massage school. Like it just... I just knew wow. it was weird. Two weeks later, I was in school. Like from hearing her say her friend was in massage school, two weeks later, I was enrolled in a one-year program. It was the wow. weirdest thing. It's like, I just knew. It's just like, I had never thought about being a massage therapist. I didn't yearn to be a massage therapist. It just, I was like, oh, I'm gonna be, that's what I'm doing. So what was, what was happening in that moment? I, I, you know, it, it has happened to me many times in my life that's where kind of something question, just yeah. kind of like entered in. You know, like I was listening and I was open and a, a little sliver 
opened up and something new came in yeah. and I, and I caught it and I actioned it and I, and I, and massage took me many places. It was beautiful. And so what I've noticed through the body work was that people were come in over and over and over again and I would shift them, yeah. you know, they would come in in like a, a, a sort of like imbalanced, tense, stressed, um, rigid place. And they'd yeah. walk out like connected, emotionally grounded, open, clear. Uh, and they didn't know how tense they were until they were relaxed. Yeah. The contrast. And so I started to notice, you know, after a decade of doing it in my early thirties and watching how I started to get really curious about what's happening upstream that's causing the body to express whatever it's expressing hmm. rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, TMJ, um, tension, aches, pains, weird, all the body communication, all yeah. sensation to me is communication from the unconscious mind. The body was the unconscious mind, I realized. And I was working on the unconscious mind. Wow. And so I just started to get really curious as like, and I, and I would notice that if someone made a shift in terms of how they see themselves, if they came to accept something that they've been in resistance to, their whole entire body changed. And so I started taking a look at how a lot of times um, the, the communication from the unconscious mind, they weren't listening to it. Yeah. It was like, this isn't working. This isn't working. You need to make a change. You need yeah. to make a change. And they're like, no, no, no. And like, they're rigid around what they're doing. And the body's sensations got louder and louder and louder and louder. And then when they make a change, it's like all of a sudden everything clears hmm. or the body makes, it's just something shifts in the body. Sure. So that really got me curious. And I had been looking to make a change uh, in my career. I was getting married. I was having a child. So my wife and I had decided to put together a tech company and I was going to coach people to tell their life story and then, you know, encapsulate it and share it with future generations. And when we were raising money, they were like, so you're a massage therapist. So how are you going to do this? You know? <laughs> and my wife's like, why don't you go get your coaching certification so that when you, we raise money, they go, oh, I coach people to share their life story. Yeah. Um, and so she encouraged me to go get my coaching certification. I had no desire to be a coach or to, I didn't even know it was possible that something new could emerge in the way in which I worked with people. Cause I was so good with my hands and, uh, I was very successful at it. I was like, well, how am I going to, what am I going to do different than this? Um, and once I got my coaching certification, that new skill opened up a whole new pathway. And so I'm curious about that moment of, we've had some, some amazing coaches, uh, on the program. And when you talk about getting that certification, I think that it varies so much coach to coach to you. How do you define coaching? Uh, how do I define it? It's yeah. Great. What, it's a great question. What, um, what is it? You know, it's, yeah. I, what is I, it for you? For me, um, for me, coaching is, um, developing a relationship. It's a relationship. Coaching is like a relationship that allows new things to emerge. Mm. So like my job is to sync up and create a relationship with another person to allow changes to begin to happen, whether that's how shift, how they see themselves, how they behave, um, to connect and tap to new possibilities and new potentials, new, new, I call it activating potential. Yeah. I feel like each and every person that sits in front of me, there's this potential that lies right below the surface. It's right. It's in them mm. and, and in the relationship and in the conversation, slowly but surely they begin to tap and activate that. 
and it's beautiful. It's like a budding flower that happens. Yeah. So for me, it's like when I was doing body work, I wasn't healing people. I was removing all of these things that were getting in the way of them healing themselves. Like yeah. their body had intelligent wisdom to heal. Yeah. And I feel like people know what they need, you know? And so like my job is to help them remove all of the things that are blocking the light inside. Yeah. And also to support them in taking the steps they need to develop the skills to activate the potential. Right. So like if, if, uh, and I see, you probably see this a lot too, is that there are these charismatic, creative, expressive people who no one knows about because they don't have the skill to put themselves out on stage to communicate their message. Right. It's just a simple skill. If they mm -hmm. had that skill, they would be communicating more often out into the world or being on stage or taking what they're doing out into the world. I love, I love that balance of like allowing something new to emerge, but also speaking to the practical skill that people sometimes need to then take action on that, to manifest that. You know, it's interesting because I'm really starting to feel the truth that I, I try not to use the word confidence anymore. Hmm. Like when like, oh, I just, I'm, how do I get confident? You know, I want to be confident. And I'm like, does Jean-Georges need confidence to cook? <laughs> no, because he's got the skill. And I realized like, I don't need confidence if I have the skill. Like when I really have the skill and I know how to do something, I just go do it. I don't need to fire myself up, warm myself up. I didn't have to like jump up and do jumping jacks and go, you can do this, this interview, you know, it's just because I feel like I have the skill just to sit down and just open up yeah, and have a conversation and see what happens, you know, and take the expectation off of it. I have the skill to let the expectation go. And what would you say to the person who says that they don't have the skill to get up in front of 500 people and give a TED talk or raise around of financing for the company. What do you do to the person who feels they may lack that skill? Well, then I help them start training that skill, finding yeah. the people that they need that are great at what they're doing yeah. at what they do and start to learn from them. Start to develop the skill, you know, first is setting the intention. I want to learn how to do this. Yeah. Like, so like six years ago, I started doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and, and I remember showing up at Henson Gracie studio, and I had wrestled in high school. I was terrible. I think I won one match and that was because he didn't show up. And so, so <laughs> I was terrible in high school. Um, but I remember going to the, the jiu-jitsu studio and, and I asked them like, how long does it take to go from white belt, which is your first belt you get, sure. to blue belt? And they're like, oh, typically it's a year. And I remember just saying, Cock, oh, I'll do it in four months. Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm strong, I'm healthy. I wrestled in high school. And <laughs> that first couple of classes, I think I threw up every class. And it took me four years to get my blue belt. And I realized that it, because I changed schools and then I got injured, all these things happened. But I, I, I realized that the only way to develop the skill was to get on the mat mm. and to do the work. And that it takes a long time to develop skill. Like my old mentor used to say, it takes a long time to grow a human. Very long time to grow a human. And there is this kind of, this is like this, in the ethers of like this like radical change now and changing it now. I mean, I've been doing this for, 10 years, I work with a lot of people. And look, I've seen change happen in 45 days that never thought possible. Yeah. But certain things take time. Yeah. And, you know, so I've learned that skill development takes time. And if you want to learn a skill, find a place that teaches that skill and learn it. If they want to learn how to do a TED talk. I'm sure if they sat with you yeah. for 10 hours or 20 hours or 100 hours, whatever it takes to develop the skill. You know, I've been trying to work on my my public speaking. So I've studied with Bo Eason. I've done his training program. Like I've studied with people who are great at speaking. Yeah. And I've done the work. And I'm still like a couple of years in getting better and better and just continuing to work. Totally. Jiu-Jitsu has given me this roadmap to black belt. 
yeah. and it's 10 years. Yeah. And I just kind of think of everything in terms of like a 10 year arc. Totally. You know, just so I would say if you don't have the skill for something, find someone who does it yeah. and ask them how they learned it. What do they do? Get the reps in. Totally. You know? It's a, it's such a, when you're talking about skill, I'm so happy that we are. It reminds me of, I used to do a lot more speaking in when schools, like with schools in schools when I was running my first nonprofit. And one of my favorite questions to ask uh, recent grads, people who are about to graduate, entering the workforce, is I always felt that one of the best questions that they could ask themselves is, what do you want to be really good at? Mm-hmm. If someone is in a, a conference room and they're like, we need someone who's really good at this, mm-hmm. like, what are they going to say your name for? Like, mm-hmm. what is that thing? And understanding, like, what is the skill mm-hmm. that you really want to master as opposed to the, the kind of external job? or place that's there. But if you have clarity about that thing that you want to become really good at, which is such an internal thing, Mm -hmm. and you've identified a desire to cultivate that thing, that you can see progress, you can find fulfillment in that. Mm -hmm. And there's just so much more of a track to become, if you become excellent Mm -hmm. at something, you're gonna find a way to make money at it. Sure. And so, but that question of what do you want to be really good at? Yeah. And so how would you, for where you're at in your career, and you feel like such a perpetual learner, what do you think is the next arc for you in terms of what it is that you want to be really good at? Um, well, it's a couple of things. So, um, one is I'm working on my ability to take what I do and operationalize it, actually create uh, frameworks so I can teach other people how to do what I do. Yeah. Like that's one, taking the skill. And, and people will come to me to say, hey, I am the best at this in the world, but yeah. I have no idea how I do it. You know, and so they'll come to me and they're like, can you help me articulate what I do? Yeah. Can you help me actually understand the frameworks and and so I can teach other people what I do? So mm-hmm. a lot of times I'll ref- be, I'm able to kind of see what's what people are doing and then articulate it back to them. And they're going, oh, I do that. Totally. Is that how I do it? Oh, yeah, it is how I do it. Because it's in the unconscious. Yeah, it's in their It's in their muscles. Right. And so this is so I'm excited because it feels like you you mentioned something before when you were talking about being on that beach. And I don't know if it registered for you when you were talking about it. But so when I was talking to John and we were getting ready for the episode, I was we were I was kind of priming it. And I'm like, I always let people coming in with like their tangible idea that they're that they're really excited to help you guys to understand an umbrella to fall under to guide our conversation. And John was talking about, you know, we can drop into conversational flow when we get in there mm. and it'll emerge. And he, and it was so obvious that he has this confidence. I've seen it even through like our text communication mm. of just being in the space of like just trusting himself that something is going to come up and he's mm. prepared to to channel that into words, into mm. communication and, and a relationship and connection. And we were kind of sitting there when we, we first got in here today and talking about like, so how would we articulate that? And, you know, I'll... I'll let you take it from there in terms of like you, when you talked about being on a beach and Mm -hmm. I asked you, what was that? And you said, you know, something was there and Mm -hmm. I was open to it. Mm -hmm. Right. Like you were just present to what was there Mm -hmm. and you caught it and Mm -hmm. it took you down a path. And it sounds like, you know, you've, you help a lot of people to do that. And so what would you say is this, how would you articulate this skill that you've cultivated and that it really feels like the foundation of so much of your work? It's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, what comes to mind first is um, sometimes trying to figure out things is the problem. It's the figuring out that creates the tension. And I've noticed that when people 
try really hard to figure things out, they lose connection. To, the tension blocks the creative flow. So if you look at like Tai Chi or Qigong, or you look at how energy flows through the nerves. Um, my old mentor, we do a lot of work, on, we call it neuromuscular lock. And when someone is trying to figure something out, they, they constrict, they um, overanalyze, um, they start to separate and isolate themselves. There's this constriction that happens in the body when people try to figure things out. And like trying to figure out my next thing in my head just makes it spin around and around. It creates tension and I lose creative connection. I lose connection to like the deeper, the well inside, the intuition, the, the subtler messages that are coming through. So for me, I think the skill of and I think it's an, it's an underrated skill of how do we drop in and relax and release tension? Because I noticed that when people, re- and this is what was happening on the massage table, and I've, I've, I've had you know many people come and actually write albums on my table, like Michael Stipe writing an album on my, on my table. He would drop in, relax, and go, oh my God. And all of these things would start coming out and he would start writing down lyrics for his songs. Mm-hmm. You know, And there's something about when someone drops in and really opens up and relaxes. It's kind of like when you're in that Shavasana at the end of amazing yoga class and there's this clarity that opens up. There's this emotional release that happens. There's this sense of like opening. Um, so for me, it's, and this is something I teach a lot with leaders is like when the pressure is high and shit hits the fan, can you drop in and relax and open so that you can creatively solve the problem, right? A lot of people go into that reaction tense kind of bulldozer mode, which sometimes needs to happen. But I've noticed that um, they lose, the, the, the people that I've worked with that have had the biggest breakthroughs are able to relax and open in the chaos. Yeah. There's a relaxed intensity to them. And, that, and from there they can make decisions because they have access to the deeper intelligence of, of their emotional body, their, of, of you know, whatever you wanna call it, the intelligence. I like to call it the gut brain and the heart brain. Yeah. You know, we take a look at the three brains, right? The head brain, the heart brain, and the gut brain. There's intelligences in the gut and the heart. And so tapping that, like what is my heart saying? What is my gut saying in this moment? Yeah. It's hard to do that when we're in, I always say like when you're on the battleground, you don't have time to meditate. And I think a lot of people are living in a battleground in their head. Yeah. They're in fight or flight. They're in scarcity mode. It's very difficult to heal when the body still feels like it's on the battleground. So, you, you know, you used a word there that I really want to anchor into because I think it'll make this very real for everyone who's listening. And you use the word tension, mm-hmm. right? And earlier you talked about it's like when something is happening in the body, it's the body being like, dude. Yeah look over here, something's happening. And so tension, you know, whether that happens in social situations, whether that happens thinking about your finances, whether that happens in like really intense work situations. But so what would be your process for everyone who's listening who has that tension (laughs) arise? Like how do we, how do we get off the battlefield for a moment and open up for some of that deeper wisdom? Well, I think this is where the skill comes in and it's, you know, to me, so like, it's funny you asked that. So there's a program I'm putting together that's based on uh, this kind of like blueprint. And so, because I was trying to figure out what is the blueprint? How do we get to that place where I can explore in that open, that open, relaxed, creative place where I can tap potential and possibilities, right? Um, and so um, developing practices. So you need practices because it's part of it is it's not like I can... Uh, 
So let me back up a second. So you asked me the question of like, how do people do that? Right? Yeah, so me, for people, okay. for like if, if someone's dropping into that place, yeah, right? They feel yeah. attention. Right. What what can they do? So it's hard to learn how to fight when someone's about to punch you. <laughs> sure. so, so you don't want to learn to fight like as the first punch is thrown, right? So the key is, is to learn and develop the skill outside of the context of trigger, right? So, so one is starting to develop healthy practices daily practices where you can train the nervous system to relax because part of it is like a neural pathway. So I can, I can go from a state of like trigger to like open and relax pretty quickly. Um, because I've trained my nervous system to do that. I know the pathway to go from like rattled mm. to grounded. Right. So the thing is to practice that. So one is to, you know, utilizing the breath and centering yourself. And so like, and I'll kind of go through some of the three practices that yeah, I teach clients. To. So one is the centering piece. So I have a buddy of mine who's a special forces guy and we were talking about like triangulating a coordination, right? So if, if they see something out in the distance, you need like multiple points to figure out how far away it is from where they are, right? If you only have a map and a compass, you need to triangulate. I think it's like two or three points on a map, right? Um, and so I realized for me, like to center myself, I usually just consciously connect to the earth, like I'm on the planet, right? I breathe into my lower belly. And then I just kind of picture the sun above me. And I'm just kind of like centered between the sun, the heaven and the earth. Mm. And this goes back into like Chinese practices. They, they talk about we live between heaven and earth. So I center myself like in my lower belly, take a deep breath feel the ground beneath me, feel the sky above me. And something happens where I feel like my body becomes dimensional in space, mm. right? It's like a lot of people are walking around like, I don't know where I am. I don't know what I'm doing. Where am I going? Where, where am I? Like, I don't know where I am. So a lot of times it's physically, I'm right here connecting to the body. So centering and connecting to, there's a breathing practice that we do where, you know, as you're taking a deep breath, you're just feeling this air coming through your feet up your spine, out your head, into the heavens, and then coming back down through your head, through your spine, out your feet, down into the earth. It's a simple Qigong practice. And even just like five or six rounds of breathing like that, there's a feeling of centering that happens. I start coming back into my body. Because again, if you think about it, the body is always in present time, but the mind is fractioned, fractionated in time. I'm in the future, I'm in the past, I'm in multiple realities of what could potentially happen here. And so to get the mind to live in the body, it's just putting our focus, awareness, and our thinking on the body, on the mm. breath. That brings the the mind into the body, right? And a lot of times when, when, when I'm working with people and they're talking, you can even see they're not even in their body. They're completely in the future or in the past. They're not even here. So like my first step is to really get them in the body. And it's usually like a couple of minutes of breathing, centering themselves and getting them rooted here in the body. That's the first thing. And then it's opening. And it's opening, you know, there's, and we can go like into the deep, deep work that I do, and it can kind of sound a little woo-woo, but um, one of the things that I open to is um, I open to my ancestors. And there's a long story around that. But one of the things that I realized is that we're all walking around thinking that we're separate, isolated, alone, and we're just like our own beings, right? And we are. But I, but I lose connection to my father's 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 father, all the way back to the first man, my mother's 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 all the way back to the first woman and how all of that genetic data mm. lives in my body. Yeah. All of it. 
Like if I got the, you know, 23 and me and looking at my lineage and I have all the way back, you know, to a tiny bit of Neanderthal that's living inside of me. But, you know, we look at epigenetics and we look at all of the stuff that's been passed down. Like I'm not alone. I have all this wisdom in my DNA. And so there is this piece that I do and it's super deep and I know it's super like, it can sound woo woo to some people. But I've watched this time and time again, when someone slows down and just opens to their ancestors, they either start crying, there is a chills that happen, they start to feel a sense of like compassion and love and support internally. It's like, how does someone get to a place feeling supported when they're absolutely alone, they don't have anybody? Like, how do you feel that feeling? And I've just watched people when they just drop into their ancestors and they feel and open and be, start to create a relationship with it. Something magical happens. It's really crazy. So I, I'm so curious. So when did you first open up to this energetic connection with your own ancestors? So funny enough, it was two days before my wife and I connected. Yeah. Um, I had uh, a buddy of mine in one of my men's group who had done something called Diksha healing which is the oneness blessing comes out of India and they do this basic laying of the hands on your head and they kind of like, I don't know exactly what they do, but they potentially, they apparently light up your uh, pineal gland. They kind of wake it up. They call and, the it, and the pineal gland is significant for what reason again? Like intuition, inside, third eye. It's like yeah. your third eye. Okay. They wake up your third eye essentially. Yeah. And, uh, and I was fascinated with this. Tony Robbins, actually, his wife, his new wife, um, had this debilitating um, illness where she couldn't get on planes wow. because she would have vertigo and she'd throw up. Now, this is Tony Robbins. He flies all around the world. So being Tony, he goes and finds the best of everybody to try and help her and fix her. No one. NLP people, hypnosis, acupuncture, er, everything. No one can fix her vertigo. She could not get on a plane. And they went and got a oneness blessing and it cured her. Hmm. And he now does Diksha healings for his platinum group. Like everyone in his high level masterminds gets a Diksha healing. Yeah. Like this is something that that has literally transformed their lives. Yeah. Um, so I had heard about it. I was super intrigued. And um, I saw this woman was doing it at like a little tiny acting studio from India. It was like $25. You know? and so, <laughs> so I show up and it's just like four foot 11 little Indian woman. And there's a room for people. And they just basically had to sit there and they walk around twice. And she laid her hands on my head. And I remember like just sitting there. First, I saw like the Virgin Mary, right? I was like an altar boy and this kid. And that was the first image that I saw. And I was like, oh, okay, that's really weird. This is like religious. This is like totally freaky. And that kind of faded. And then I saw, you know, when you're a kid and you you fold a bunch of piece of paper and you cut like a gingerbread man and then you open it up and it yeah. fans open. You got like 30 of them, right? Totally. So I saw my father. And then all of a sudden, like she had her hands on my head and my father started to fan out and I started to see every one of my father's fathers, hmm. like all the way back to the first man, thousands of men. And like, I'm getting a little emotional right now. And it was like the first time that I felt connected to my ancestors. Like hmm. I know my grandfather, but he was very stoic. He was a, you know, police officer. My other grandfather was in world war two is a purple heart you know, fought the Nazis, very quiet, right? And have a lot of like connection to them. So I don't know any lineage past my grandparents. And so in this moment, like I felt such a deep connection to all of, and, and particularly it was the men. 
Like it was all of the men that have come before my father and something like opened up inside of me, like a, like a confidence, a certainty, um, a grounding a sense of self that was, was stable. Like I felt stable in myself. I just felt like, like this channel opened up and I just felt like full. Hmm. And, um, and I remember, uh, I just had eight years sober. It was like the day of my sobriety at eight years sober. And then, uh, like a day later, it was a day later, actually, it wasn't two days. It was a day later. Um, my wife, who was my friend at the time, we were friends for two years. We danced five rhythms together for like two years. We'd dance every Tuesday and this wonderful friendship. And I always had a little crush on her in the beginning. Uh, but I, she was way out of my league. She was like running this, you know, part of this hedge fund and had a kid. And I was just like massage therapist, music producer, actor, playing poker, you know, getting up at noon every day. (laughs) Right. So, um, she had uh, just out of coincidence had done a constellation session, therapy session. And she wound up at my front door saying, Hey, I'm here for your party. And I'm like, what party? She's like, didn't you, aren't you having a party today? And I'm like, Nope, <laughs> but you could come on in. She's like, thank you. Cause I just had this like crazy mystical constellation experience. And I was like, Oh my God, I just had this crazy Diksha thing where I connected to my ancestors, you know? And she came in, she sat down on the couch and she put her feet up and I just remember like grabbing her feet to massage her feet. And like in that moment instantly, like we've never been apart ever since. Wow. Like it was like this moment of connection and something I think opened up in both of us yeah. deeply that allowed for this love to emerge. You know, I could have never intentionally gotten her, you know, like not in a million years. This was something that was super magical. We both were blown open in that moment. And, uh, yeah. And so just for more context, for people who are there, when you say constellation therapy, can you provide a little bit of insight into what that is? It's a basically? type of work where it's kind of where, um, someone will take a, an experience, an event, a trauma, a moment. It might be like, you know, when they were a child and they'll take people and have them play different parts of an event, like actually physically. Like, so I've done this many times where I'll be someone's father who, uh, you know, this one guy, had this his father was abusive and he was yelling at his sister so like here i am like they put this one girl on her knees and i'm like pointing my finger at her and we're like embodying and reenacting it's all it's weird it's like this crazy thing where i start feeling things coming through me that i would do that i would never do that the father did it's this really strange process that happens a field opens up and so people start embodying the energy and they and it's kind of like a psychodrama that they do in rehab and therapy um, and you get to see dimensionally an experience that you've had and watch it play out. And all of a sudden these learnings and ahas and um, healings take place during this. And I'm probably doing a horrible job explaining what constellation is. And um, our friend Matisse does constellation work. Is it two moon ranch? Where is she? I think it's two moons. Two yeah. moons. We'll have to two, see two moons in, in cold in, in, garrison. in garrison. In garrison. A little shout out to Matisse's work. <laughs> She's amazing. I was up there last week. She was doing some constellation work with the horses which was powerful. And I got an amazing healing from which Goli- is, Goliath. She's told me about this. So to put in more context of like how wild this can get. And I've had people who've come back from these experiences really transformed and in awe of them is where, you know, John just talked about 
partly basically embodying the role of the father and what she'll actually do is have these horses who have this my mom grew up on a on a horse ranch and she talks about this kind of sixth sense that exists between horses and people mm. if you've been around them long enough and so she'll actually create these scenes from people's past, whether those were traumatic or important and significant in some way. And she will have the horses play roles Mm -hmm. in that scene. And so people are interacting with horses, which the first time I heard it, I was like, that sounds crazy. And then when I hear people talk about what happens and they talk about something happening with these horses and how they're moving and how they're relating to them and what's coming up. And when you talk about, you know, in some of the earlier stuff about how some of this can seem woo, I, I can't tell you know, I could tell you this, but for the people who are listening, like how many times in men's group or at a retreat, the idea of a stranger becoming your father or your, mm-hmm. you know, partner of a different mm-hmm. sex that mm-hmm. you are upset with or angry at and feels like you're not my dad, you're not my partner, but right. just being in there yeah. for one second and it just that that energy becomes available I've been many people's fathers <laughs> and but it, you know it's beautiful because it's funny just to go back with the horses real quick yeah so i, I met matisse uh, about a week ago and she introduced me to goliath her big white horse yeah and that evening i had a dream the goliath came to me in my dream and asked me to bring him a bag of apples and carrots this is the night after this is the night after i yeah. I, I met the horse and so I emailed Matisse. I said, this is going to sound really strange. And, and, yeah. and I apologize if it sounds really weird. But Goliath came to me in my dream and asked me to bring him a bag of apples and carrots. And she's like, yeah, apparently he comes to people in your dreams. And I'm like, is it okay if I swing by, you know, and bring him some apples? So I, I went by on Saturday with wow. my son, my eight-year-old. And, um, and we fed him this big bag of apples and carrots. And I'll show you some photos later, but um, there was this one moment where they were doing some constellation work with the horses, but Goliath came all the way to the other side where I was standing and he put his nose on my face and kept it there for like 10 minutes, literally breathing into my nostrils while I was breathing with him. I've never breathed with a horse before. I'm allergic to horses. I wasn't allergic to him, by the way, (laughs) but apparently they imprint through breath. And they, 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 they know people through the breath. And wow. so if, if you want to imprint with the horse if, to get a sense of who you are, you, you breathe into their nostrils. But he came and he put his nostril right up against my face and he just kept it there and he laid it there. And I just started bawling. Wow. I just started crying. I just literally like all of this like, I mean, I carry a lot of like deep layers of sadness that every once in a while, like the valve opens up and it and the and a piece of it releases, yeah. you know, just from stuff like in my childhood that I can't get to consciously. It's like deep in my body. Yeah. And there every once in a while, a portal opens and I'm like, oh, I can release this. It's, and it's beautiful. Yeah. But he did something just being there, his presence, his energy, this 2000 pound beast, like just resting on my face. Um, and then we had this crazy moment where he started yawning. I've never seen a horse yawn. Have you yeah. seen a horse yawn? I've never seen a horse yawn. I'm thinking about it and I can't. I didn't even know they yawned, okay? Yeah. But this horse started yawning, right? And I started, he gave me a yawn, like, you know, the contagious yawn. And then I yawned, like, two seconds later. And then he yawned again. And then I yawned. And then it was, I started laughing. And then he yawned. And I said, could you not? I yawned again. 
And then he, you could tell he was kind of like getting a little annoyed. And then he started yawning and he came over and he flicked me with his head. He's like, go away. You're making me yawn. <laughs> so, but, uh, but there's something magical about the horses. Yeah. And it's beautiful that she's doing the work, the constellation work with the horses. Yeah. And so this constellation work, you know, this powerful opening going back to my wife and how we connected, something opened up for her energetically. And I think that for her, that was a big part of her spiritual awakening. She was in finance and she was went to business school and worked at a hedge fund and worked at Disney and worked at News Corp. Um, and now, I mean, she's written two books. She's does healing work. She also runs three companies. But, you know, she's this like powerful woman who's connected to her feminine, has super like just psychic powers and also runs companies. Like she's got the the, the blend of like that super kind of business focus acumen, but like this deep spiritual well. Yeah. And I think that constellation was like a kickoff for her in terms of her spiritual journey. It really opened her up to something new yeah. that she then kind of started to work and bring into her. She became a feng shui master. She uh, started doing theta healing. She, you know, went to get her yoga training. Like she had all these skills that she started to learn to take this deep, kind of awakening and do something with it and yeah. talk about where do you learn the skills and she's just started studying yeah you know it's like even as, as you talk about this idea of connecting to one's ancestors and you i want to reference something you said earlier which is you don't you don't learn to fight when you're about to get punched and so yeah. if you're like in an office with people and you're trying it for the first time yeah it's, probably not this yeah, totally but also it's like i i'm thinking about it at least for me of like you know when i sit in my next meditation like when i'm coming out of that when i'm in that space i'm just going to open up to that yeah like, see what's there open down into the earth and just open up to the ancestors right yeah. it's like because they're all down there in the earth right think about it totally they're they're buried yeah you know but energetically too there's a connection that happens oh interesting so we talked about like how does someone get to a place where they can be like creative and open right so yeah. when we talk about centering and centering the mind and the body yeah you know, feeling the earth, feeling your, your belly, which is your physical center. Yeah. And feeling that. I mean, I just, there's something about connecting to the sun to me, which is really powerful, hmm. which by the way, it's unfathomable because it can fit 1.3 million earths. That always boggles my brain that there is a planet on fire that we see every day. Oh, it's a planet on fire. Not a big deal. I'm going to go, ah, oh, shit, I'm going to thirsty. I want some coffee. There's a planet on fire up there that like heats our whole planet, you know, that we're just further enough away to have the perfect, you know, totally. living planet. I just, sometimes I just contemplate the beauty and magic of that. Um, so the centering pieces, and there's so much practice around centering. And in my program that we're going to be doing in March, and we could talk about later, uh, I'm going to be teaching a lot of this stuff too. So the centering and the opening, and then there's the releasing. And the releasing piece is releasing tension. So if, if I was to teach someone how to do anxiety, right? <laughs> like if I was to, like, how would you teach someone how to do anxiety? Oh man, I mean, to do anxiety. How do you do anxiety? I, I, how to like actually be in an anxious state. Yeah. How do you do anxiety? I'm in my head. I'm thinking about what's going to go wrong in the future, how people are going to respond or situations are going to end up being very challenging and I won't be able to handle them. I am. And what's happening to your body as you're doing that? Tightness, shortness of breath, sweating. Um, so that's be forward facing or I'd be thinking about how I fucked up something from the past. Great. Yeah. yeah. So if I was teach someone how to do anxiety, I would have them not breathe, clench their chest yeah. and their jaw, frow their brow. Right. And just focus on some picture. That's not good. 
some potential future reality, yeah. right? So not breathe, frown the brow, right? Clench the jaw. And so when we look at how to train the opposite of anxiety, like an openness, a curiosity, right? First thing I have people do is relaxing the jaw, like actually literally softening the jaw stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system, right? Um, full breaths, like a five in, five out rhythmic breathing. Yeah. They're talking about all this like heart rate resonant breathing. And uh, one of my old teachers, John Overdurf, would talk about from heart math. He kind of introduced me to the heart math Institute. They talked about like five in, five out starts to activate the vagus nerve, you know, the vagal nerve that connects the gut and the heart and the head. Right. So, and it stimulates a feeling of safety. Right. So there's this breathing that happens. So the releasing of tension comes from like that rhythmic breath, relaxing, but also releasing, um, judgments, releasing expectations, um, releasing any reactivity, uh, releasing narratives and stories. Like these are all things that create tension, which is the belief that I'm not okay. I'm not safe. Like I just release that. I'm going to release this belief and that I'm safe right here, right now in this moment, as you're listening to this podcast, you're completely safe hmm. for the most part. Right. Hopefully. Right. If unless you're in like literal physical danger and someone's about to hurt you. But for the most part, when we're sitting you and I right here, we're completely safe. And if so, right. we give you complete permission to stop listening and, and go take care shit. of what you got to take care <laughs> of. Right. But for the most part, like, you know, this feeling of not being safe and that I'm not okay, like releasing the belief that I'm not okay. Yeah. The other piece too is releasing the belief that I don't have time. So one of the things that, and then this is something that takes a while to condition in the nervous system. But if I said to you to look at all the things that you have to do and to say to yourself, I don't have enough time. Like even just thinking about that, even as you're listening, like I don't have enough time. Feel into your chest. What happens to your chest when you think about, I don't have enough time? It constricts. It constricts, right? So there's a valve in our chest, that whole thing constricts. I don't have time. And for most people walking around, like I don't have enough time. And then someone asks them, suits them an email, asks for something. And it's like, there's this anxiety and tension that starts to get triggered because I don't have enough time, right? That's the, the belief that runs. And there's a simple practice that we do actually that I learned from Jean-Louis Radoui, who was the movement coach for like um, Leonardo DiCaprio and Daniel D. Lewis and all these kind of character pieces. Mm. We would do this exercise in his, uh, one of his acting workshops that I took for stage where he would go, I have time. He goes, and let that wash over your body right now and just take it on as if it's true right now in this moment, I have time. Wow. I got goosebumps. As you and what happens yeah. is there's this opening in the chest that happens, right? And it's a flow trigger. I have time as a flow trigger. Right? I don't, there is no time when you're in flow, right? You're stepping out of time, yeah. right? And so there's this delicate balance when we're trying to execute in the world or we're leading something. Can I be in a place where I have time? And actually Milton Erickson used to say with his patients when he was doing hypnosis, he would say, you have all the time in the world in the next three minutes to wrap up whatever you need to wrap up and to make the connection that you need to make. And so he would create this feeling of timelessness and he put a time barrier around it. Wow. So I've noticed that for me, like if I have, you know, sometimes I'll have seven coaching calls in a day and I'll have like 10 minutes and I'm like five emails that I have to write. I'm like, oh my God, I don't have time to write this. And I get this anxiety in my chest. I'm like, I have time. 
I can blow through five emails in 70 seconds. Just like boom, 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 boom. Like there's this flow that happens when I'm relaxed and open. There's like a, an efficiency that happens. Mm. You start to bend time when there's a relaxedness. And so like when I'm tense and I'm trying to force something through fast, I fumble. I fumble, I make mistakes. But like when I'm relaxed and, uh, and I'm working through it, I can flow through things. Yeah. So there's this like really interesting, you know, kind of space, this edge of like, I have time. And that from that relaxed open thing, I execute. Knowing that there's a ton of shit to do, but can I, can I even just step into and suspend the, the belief that I don't have time for a second? I think that, and what's what's really occurring for for me in this is again, it's very very practically recognizing that time constraints will exist if you're with a client and they have an hour, or if you're in a meeting, acknowledging that a time constraint may exist, but the consciousness of that yeah is counterproductive yeah. to allowing what's supposed to emerge or what could emerge from really coming there. And I remember, you know, even in, in some of the work that I do coaching people on Ted talks, or as I got more into life coaching over Mm. the past two years is I've, I always embraced that I was good at what I did and that we like consistently great titles, great content, you know, people were happy Mm. every single time. I've never had a client like stop like working with me, but at the same time, I, when I would walk into that space earlier in my career, I would have this tension in me mm-hmm. because I was waiting for the the insight mm-hmm. to come. Mm-hmm. And until the insight came, I, I felt tension. Yeah. And that was like the driving force to be present and to do it. But it made the act of being with my clients kind of like unpleasant. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It was productive and I enjoyed it. And so I kept coming back to it. Mm-hmm. But the process of being there was unpleasant and mm-hmm. I didn't like fully enjoy it because right. of that. And then through like my introduction to some of like the Gestalt communication, Gestalt principles, what I shifted to in my coaching and consulting is like what we're going to do is embrace a couple of principles mm-hmm. and it's that we're going to be curious. We're going to be completely real with the thoughts and feelings that emerge in this space. And we're going to trust that whatever is supposed to emerge will come. Mm-hmm. And it's just being present to what's there. Yep. And it's this idea of like, we're not here to think about what the thing is that we want out of it. We're here to be completely present, curious, authentic. Mm-hmm. And if we can just be there, like what's supposed to emerge is going to emerge. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I was saying it to my client, Mm. but it was a reminder for me to enter into that space. And as I did that, you know, something so amazing that happened like over the past two years is like, I would notice that when the thing would come, someone would be speaking and I even get it like right now, I would get chills up the back of my neck. Mm -hmm. And it's like when the thing came, when they were saying something and that was the, that was the thread, that was the shift, that was the stat that they needed to key in on. I would, and I started calling them rather than goosebumps, I call them truth bumps. Mm. Cause I'm just there with like, that's the thing. It's mm-hmm. like alive and so present to how impacted I am by it. Mm. But so when you talk about that, like you have time, it's just, it's why I think I trigger those goosebumps. For me. So I love that so much. Man. Yeah. It cre- it releases the tension. Uh, and then from that release of tension, the openness happens, then creativity possibilities open up you know my old mentor you know talks about like the quantum field of infinite possibilities right and and people you know clients come to me because they're rigid in some way shape or form in terms of maybe their behavior or their thinking or their ideas and you know like this idea of um life is suffering you know the kind of buddhist kind of belief um you know life is suffering what I realize is that persistent suffering is not life. 
Right. And so like suffering is, is normal in life. We suffer, mm -hmm. but it's the persistent suffering when I try to continue to change over and over and over again, but I keep stepping in the same shit or nothing's changing. That's when I need to kind of begin to let go of and release what my current maps are of the world, reality, beliefs. That's where we start working with the unconscious and taking a look at the maps and the filters is that something needs to change. I need to kind of surrender how I am gripping the world and I need to kind of open up to something new. Yeah. And so I'm curious of, you know, we have a lot of entrepreneurs, kind of like self-starters, CEOs listen to the podcast. And one of the things that that oftentimes comes up in, in some of my own coaching work with with the men that we work with is the idea that this tension, this stress that so many of them experience is without maybe acknowledging it, a motivator of productivity sure. and achievement. Sure. And so, you know, how do we how do we acknowledge the the motivating force that the same way that, you know, it, the body is telling you pay attention, mm. you know, whether we're fabricating it, but it's like, you know, you only have so much time, this is gonna go wrong, mm. is a motivating force to act. And a lot of, even for me, it's yeah. like that I only, and so many who only understand achievement through the experience of stress and tension. Yeah, sure. How do you grapple with that? Especially as someone who works with so many, you know, top tier CEOs and leaders. Yeah, it's a great question. So the challenge is, if we look at the two motivating forces of moving away from something, like, I don't want this to happen. Holy crap, I can't pay my payroll. And there's this kind of like, I don't want that to happen. There's a motivation to move away from something, right? And you're talking about this kind of stress and tension of like, holy crap, people are living in this kind of survival, fight or flight, anxiety space. Uh, the challenge is, is that when you move away from that hot fire of like, I don't want this, mm. and that really activates you. I mean, because that's how I used to work. I wouldn't move until shit hit the fan. Right. And my back was against the wall. And then I was amazing. But I had to get to that place. Yeah. Right. Problem is, is that once you start to make the changes, you take action and things start to settle down, there's no more fire. And so people start to get complacent. The energy to move starts stops. So they start creating more drama. It becomes like a cycle. Right. Where and I've seen this where clients will will there's like things get crazy and then they go into massive action and things get great. And then it's great for a few months and then stuff starts to get terrible again totally. to the point where they have to then feel the pain to take action. So I think it's, you know, for a lot of people is they've conditioned their nervous system to be motivated by tension, stress, the whip, fear, right? Um, it's, it's starting to make this change to be, to find deeper motivators, right? And this is where some of the values work and really taking a look at what's meaningful to you and really starting to find um, different triggers, different activators of motivation, taking a look at what you really want and having the thing pull you from the future versus pushing you, you know, like, I don't want this. I can, I hate where I'm at. I, I want to get out of this house. I hate this house versus like, wow, you know what I want? I want an open, clear space where I can relax and drop in and feel at home. That's what I really want. And like moving toward what I want versus moving away from all the crap. So yeah. it's, I think, you know, the thing about, just to talk about anxiety, um, uh, Andy Mahoney, one of my, my current mentors I'm working with, always says that anxiety is a lack of skill, period. Like that's his whole thing is that it's, and it's a call to arms. And anytime I feel anxious now, I'm like, what am I not taking care of or addressing 
that's causing this anxiety. Yeah. So it might be like, you know, something happening in my relationship, you know, with my, oh, so for example, so my son, my eight year old last June had two seizures wow. out of the blue, like healthy, happy young boy had mm. two massive seizures. Wow. And there has been a lot of anxiety. Anyway, it was probably one of the most challenging. It was like a big PTSD trigger for me too. It was like, cause I was there when it happened. It was really intense. He's great now, eight months later, like he's doing fantastic. He's on medication, but there's a lot of anxiety that begins like, so for example, like he was, he wasn't eating properly. He, he had no appetite. And so I had all this anxiety about feeding him and eating. And what I realized like, okay, is the, what's the anxiety? It's a call to arms. I'm like, okay there's things that I need to do around that. So I got him a Chinese doctor. I started to um, cook all keto. Like the anxiety was because there were things that I was not addressing or, or dealing with, and it was a call to arms. And I'm realizing now, whenever I feel anxiety, there's something that I'm not taking care of, something that I'm not addressing. There's a skill that I'm not developing that's allowing me to handle the challenge, right? So if I'm anxious about finances all the time, well, I need to develop the skills on managing my finances. I need to take a look, face it head on, take a look at what's really going on. What do I need? I'm not dealing with it. That's why I have anxiety, right? So it's like, and look, there are some anxiety disorders and there's some like a whole spectrum of anxiety disorders, right? So I'm not talking about all anxiety, yeah. but for the most run of the mill anxiety that we feel day to day, a lot of times it's a call to arms. There's always going to be anxiety that's a driver. Yeah. But it's when it becomes chronic, dysfunctional, gets in the way of actually you being open and relaxed and at ease, where you're using drugs and alcohol to find a space of release. Yeah. That's where that there's deeper levels of skill, deeper healing work that might need to happen. Because um, some anxiety comes from just trauma work, trauma that's stored in the body, unresolved issues that need to be addressed. Yeah. Um, so I've watched people, I mean, look, anxiety is one of those crazy things. I mean, sometimes I can see people shift and they become more open at ease and comfortable. There's like situational anxiety, you know, where there's an environment that's causing a lot of um, fear. And once they remove themselves from that environment, the anxiety lifts, you know. Um, but going back to your original question of like, how do we find motivation that's not anxiety and stress, yeah. you know? Um, there's that phrase like what got me here won't get me there you know right and so i just feel like when i watch people in their 30s and 40s still using the flogging and the anxiety and the stress and the pressure as a motivator it's an outdated model it might have gotten them to the success level but it will take them down right it's like there are certain things that get us to where we need to get but then they become liabilities and that's where you know starting to ask the question of i wonder what are the new activators and motivators that are going to take me to the next level and that might be a question you need to ask yourself you know and start asking yourself i wonder what what's going to take me to the next level i wonder what my new drivers are going to be i wonder what really lights me up yeah totally to then take a step and take an action in a way that's like healthy and productive and generative and like enjoyable yeah i don't enjoy executing from stress and my wife hates it when I do that, right? Yeah. And a lot of times when I execute from stress, it's because I'm not executing on the skills. You know, totally. I get stressed a lot of times putting together decks for presentations yeah. and, and stage, right? So I'm developing the skill. Now it's like, I don't get as stressed anymore because I developed a skill of like, here's what I want to say. Here are the things, how I'm going to break it down. So now I have some skills on putting my ideas down on paper. 
Totally. You know? And I think one thing that's so beautiful about, you know, your perspective for me is, is the idea of saying it's like, it's counterproductive. It can be, but that also that there's also wisdom in it. And, Absolutely. And it may be useful and necessary at certain times. Totally. And yeah. that, that idea of embracing it of like the idea of, I think so much kind of personal development language can be like eliminate anxiety, instant confidence. Yeah, it's, and it's, sometimes it's really useful, man. It's gotten me, <laughs> it's gotten me out of Manhattan. It, yeah. it helped me transform my career when I realized I was having a child. Like yeah. I was in panic mode. Yeah. But man, I took massive action Yeah, because of that. I, I like what you're saying because there's a fundamental belief to me that nothing is inherently good or bad yeah it's either useful or not useful in terms of like what we experience behavior right is Beautiful. it useful or not useful in terms of what we're trying to achieve yeah so if the anxiety is really useful in terms of what you want to achieve fantastic great but if it's not useful and it's getting in the way of you having like an enjoyable day-to-day -day existence yeah then that there may be another strategy of motivation that you haven't yet explored or connected to yeah yeah, I, I, it resonates really deeply, man. And so, you know, one thing that I'm curious about is when you look at this work, I'm curious how it has translated into kind of all the stuff that you're doing in the realm of men's work and mm. specifically for, you know, if we're speaking to kind of the masculine energy of like the analytical and the problem solving, it's um, what about this type of work that that you are so gifted with what about this current time that we find ourselves in how is this work translating and why is it important for like, collectively the work that men are doing and you feel maybe they should be doing or yeah, yeah well okay so a couple of things are coming up one is if i look at the root of most of our suffering it's disconnection yeah. for the most part of I can, I can trace it and disconnection from the breath disconnection from the body, disconnection from the earth, disconnection from other men, right? There's this isolation somehow that we feel we are separate and alone, right? And that was a big piece for me in what drove me into the men's work and getting exposed in there. I just felt a disconnection and isolation from other men, right? Um, Which then from? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I had two sisters. I had a lot. I mean, uh, my dad was, you know, uh, always working. So I didn't, I, I always yearned for more emotional connection, but I just don't know if he had the skills to do that. Um, you know, he communicated in his way and he was great, a great father, but there was something that I was always yearning more of from a connection that I never really felt like I got from him, yeah. you know, and, and on me too. Right. I mean, I, there was definitely a lot of challenging, um, situations that I caused in my teens that created a rift between he and I. I was a pretty wild teen at times. So, um, <laughs> and now I have two boys and now I, I know exactly how my father feels. I have a lot of compassion and a lot of healing now that I have children. I have yeah. two boys and 16 and eight, my 16 year olds, my stepson. Um, so yeah, there was a disconnection for whatever reason, right? Yeah. I had a, a lack of trust amongst men, right? And a fear. Uh, that I was going to be either attacked. I had been many fights as a kid. And so, um, so, so this work, one, is creating a feeling of connection with myself, my breath, my body, my emotions, mm. knowing uh, and valuing and honoring who I am um, and where I've come from in my experience and validating myself. I think a lot of men uh, feel a lot of shame and they don't value themselves, they don't honor themselves in their experience. They carry a lot of shame, like I'm bad. 
It's a big piece. And what I've noticed is that that shame creates isolation, it creates a separateness. Mm. So I think in the men's work, you know, I take a look at the work that I'm doing, right, is this, this removal of shame, right? It's just like, you know, I had a mentor that just eliminated it from his words. Like, I just eradicated that. It's not in my life, you mm. know, and I just love that. Um, and how do you or this mentor define shame? Um, this feeling that I am bad. Yeah. Right. And, and is it an internal one, like of you saying you're bad or of the external world saying that you're bad? Well, I mean, you can tell me I'm bad and I'm just like, whatever, fuck you. Right. It's like, it's, it's to me, what I'm realizing is that shame comes when I have not, I have not integrated my experience. I have not owned my experience. I have not framed my experience as part of the developmental journey. There was a lot of shame I had in my teens that until recently I didn't reframe and realize, oh, that's part of the developmental journey of being a teen, doing stupid shit, making mistakes, um, you know, not thinking, getting myself in really bad situations and learning, growing and developing from that uh, and realizing that that was part of my developmental journey. Like part of the way that we eliminate shame is to just own and honor everything that has happened as part of of who makes us who we are and in um kind of informs how we live in the world today so like there are things that i've done before my i got married in relationships with women that were just not cool like ghosting or you know being intimate with a woman and then realizing ooh, you know what this isn't really what i wanted but not really communicating it to her and then just not saying anything yeah and the way that i've kind of um forgiven myself for that is to behave differently (laughs) like the greatest amends is to just change my behavior and like living i live authentically with my wife you know the past 10 years and i treat women with respect and i communicate my feelings and my needs and and why i do what i'm doing right i don't not communicate right because there are some times where i don't i don't have access to those women they don't don't want anyone to talk to me (laughs) right so so my amends is changing my behavior and 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 being different now and that's how i've cleared that shame it's like wow okay that was you know i'm sorry for what i did and i've changed you know that's part of the way of integrating the experience versus going oh i was such an asshole and i was terrible with women and i'm a terrible person it's like well how are you being now yeah and so the other piece too i've noticed in my work and how it kind of connects a little bit with the men's work and and this is why a a lot of you know like men's groups are asking me to come and sit in their groups and i'm doing one day trainings and people are asking me to come in and do healing journeys and um is there's a, a piece of my work around parts work which is really powerful and you experienced i think three of those in that training yeah i did with with brian and i think with kevin and with yeah. you yeah. yeah and what i've noticed is that we have disconnected and dissociated from parts of ourselves you know and some people call it like the shadow piece of things that i hate about myself that i've disconnected and pushed away but there's aspects of things that are my goal that I've disconnected and judged and pushed away. So this, this journey as to me, as men of becoming whole and owning everything, owning my rage, owning my judgments, owning my um, fears, owning my sadness and bringing it all home and welcoming it all and not judging it. And that's a really, that's a skill of welcoming it. And I think it might even be helpful to, I mean, I can, I can actually add more context of like what this looks like of, so when I sat with John in this session, 
what was coming up in my relationship at the time is that about a month prior, I had broken an agreement in our relationship to not watch porn. And I hadn't watched porn in, in a very long time. And so I had come clean the day after it had happened. And so I had established a, a dynamic where if, if that agreement was ever broken, I would tell her the next day so she never had to think about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I tell her immediately so she'd always know. She would never have to think, is he doing it? And so even when we told her, but it, something was emerging in me of that how I was just curious about where this where this agreement had stemmed from in her and what she was making porn mean and and what need was not being met by her and as I talked about it you know she was really kind of feeling it as this lack of desire for her and, mm -hmm. and exerting sexual energy elsewhere when in me it, it was wasn't occurring to me as that mm -hmm. and it felt like by setting this agreement that in a way, and it just, it felt so dishonest and like not taking a stand for, which I would articulate, like not a desire to have a consistent relationship with pornography, but acknowledging that it is a turn on, mm -hmm. you know, acknowledging that like, as I allowed myself to be with my, my desire in pornography, as opposed to just saying I'm strong willed enough mm -hmm. to, to put that away because you hate it so much to sit and be honest with what is my actual desire what do i actually feel porn is a turn on for me true it's like what do i want my relationship with porn to be it's like i don't want it to be something that i'm doing mm -hmm. consistently mm -hmm. or even like more than like a couple of times a month if that it is something that i want to use as a tool to cultivate like uh to to go into watching porn without feeling shame without mm -hmm. feeling rushed in that space because mm -hmm. it has been a thing that was such a shame trigger for mm -hmm. my entire life you know mm -hmm. even when i was younger and even you know potentially even experiencing what would it be like to watch this with you mm -hmm. as a vehicle for our own sexuality exploring that and there was so much that i i just had never even acknowledged because i felt so much shame around it right yeah so yeah. i couldn't talk about it yeah. and it was in this inability to just own it to be with it that i i was constricted yeah. in this, you know and so yeah. and it was finally when i was like i could see how much me breaking this agreement was hurting her she felt she just felt so bad and she was so angry and i was like you are angry you are ang i broke an agreement and mm -hmm. i'm owning that because mm -hmm. it's not okay in our relationship mm -hmm. and i was like and i gotta own that but to really help her and serve the relationship i needed to own my what was real in me Sure. what i was feeling and yeah. then when i did that like everything shifted and there's like so the agreement's gone it's like there's no charge i i my my pull towards pornography is like 10x lower mm -hmm. i don't think about it when it's mm -hmm. not you know what i mean because there's sure. not that shame piece to it i think we got to it with just owning this desire this sexual desire that you had in your body that you were pushing down and repressing yeah and i think we you know and so part of it is sometimes like owning that part and then just holding it with presence yeah. and kindness and compassion. And sometimes there's parts of us that are, that need a little bit of growing up, a little bit of maturing, a little bit of like presence in present time. Yeah. Cause you know, I've noticed when I first got sober, they said that, you know, emotionally we stop growing the moment we pick up a drink. And I picked up like 12 or 13 right? and stopped until I was 26. Right. right so when I was 26, I was a 13 year old emotionally, you know, if, if you go by how they, they kind of frame it. But I do see, um, developmentally when we don't own a part, it never comes to the present. It never comes into consciousness and we can't work with it and, and kind of, um, grow it up. 
So I, there's a lot of people that I work with that come that are like making $10 million a year and running hedge funds and they're super successful. And there's this part that they have not integrated. That's yeah. like still a young boy, a young child that they wrestle with. And there's this internal conflict between, you know, priorities and, you know, values and commitments that they wrestle with and struggle. I love, I love that idea of it not growing up. It's just like yeah. that, that, that idea of like, you know, my relationship with say porn, like started when I was 13 yeah. and the idea of never really talking about it, honestly, doesn't allow me to process it with like the consciousness that I've of now, present time yeah, of, of the present, present you. Yeah. And so we, so the, the porn relationship is not organized around your current self around yeah. your present self. It's it's still like that 13 year old boy. Right. And so, you know, when we begin to own yeah. without judgment, without shame and just hold a space for it. Um, we begin to kind of with just presence, we begin to grow it up we begin to integrate it. It doesn't become the thing in the shadow that's pulling the strings. Yeah. And that happens a lot where I see, so going back to the men's work, one of the things I've noticed the 10 years I've been doing men's work is that I'll look at a guy and I'll watch what he's presenting just in terms of like communication. I watch this and then I start to think about what's really going on. Like <laughs> who is he really? And there's a gap between what's being presented and what's really being felt and experienced. And so my job is always to shorten the gap to where there is none, where what you see and what you experience is the, they're embodying who they are fully. It's not like I'm putting on a facade, but I really feel scared and shame and alone and I'm a fraud, but I come across and like, I mean, I had a client of mine who was like a huge influencer, like millions of people like this motivational speaker and then he'd sit down with me and he'd start bawling and feeling like he was a fraud and a failure and he was terrible and no one loved him and it was just like my head spun because i was like who's that guy up there because that guy's amazing man he's inspiring but who's this guy you know and this was the he, this is the challenge when we don't integrate fully and we become very successful it becomes very difficult to integrate because everybody sees you as one way, but then there's this reality that's totally different. And I think people start to get, they start to break down, you know, and they collapse and they kind of go from the peak and they go and they crash. I've seen that with many people, you know, and that, you know, drugs and alcohol open up and so on and so forth. So the key is, is, is can I become closer and closer to living my truth? Can I speak what's really going on? For me, the hardest thing to do when I started men's group was to actually say what I felt like to actually communicate in the moment, what I felt, what I was experiencing. It was so difficult. And even today I find myself, someone will ask me a question and I'll think, I have no idea. I'm really tired. My head hurts. I don't really have connection to my body. Like, I don't know how to answer this. Okay. What do I, what do I, what do I want them to know? And I like try to come up with an answer versus saying, wow, you know, it's a great question. I'd love to answer it right now, but I'm feeling really out of it. Like, that's the truth. That's what I'm experiencing. But I feel I, I don't say what's really happening. I try to, you know, give a great answer or, you know. So I, I even today, I think, okay, what am I, how can I say what is right now in this moment? And men's circles is a fantastic way to practice that. Yeah. And even with my wife, what I've noticed is that when I speak what is true, when I'm, when I'm really experiencing depth and intimacy, and turn on a curse as soon as they speak what's true and what's honest and what's happening like there's like this chemical connection that happens with my wife yeah. it's when i'm not communicating what's really happening that there's a divide and a tension and a wall that occurs 
right? So just the practice of really speaking to what is, and it might be like, wow, like I'm laying here and I really, I really feel like I want to connect with you, but I don't know how. And I feel like I'm in my head and I'm trapped and I feel tension. And I would really love to find a way to get through this. Like that could be what's really happening. Yeah. But like to actually say that. And when I say that, my wife is, it's like, boom, like we're instantly, there's instant intimacy when we speak the truth of what's happening in the moment. But it's yeah. so hard for a lot of us to do that. What's it, it's like, because we don't have a, a literacy around those feelings. No ever, yeah. No one ever right? educated me on speaking my truth, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, and one of the things that tell me how this shows up for you is that in so much, and I'd love for you to talk about like some of the work with every man and other things that you guys do, cause it's been such a huge influence in mm. my life. But, um, in our own, like one of the things that we always anchor into it at Junto retreats is the idea that when you speak your truth, you create the space where another man can do the same thing. Yeah. You model the behavior. That's how we learn and you watch those, other people doing it. And this is, and it, for people who are listening, who are interested or have, you know, people that they love that are interested about this kind of work. One of the most powerful things that happens in these spaces, again, and I'm going back to your analogy from earlier when you said, it's like, you don't train, you don't learn how to fight when you're about to get punched in the face. Mm. And like, this is peacetime. This yeah. is like the, this is the dojo. It's sure. one of these types of places where the reinforcement that we see time and time again when one man says that thing that he's never shared mm -hmm. with with anybody before sure uh, when he does that the experience of other men receiving that and watching that that emotional courage to voice that thing to express it and then seeing how that impacts another person and seeing how that person impacts another person and seeing how this type of ownership of our experience, that courageous expression, a, a transparent expression of self, mm -hmm. truly is an act of service. Mm -hmm. And so I, I oftentimes say in my own communication work, the idea that I, I kind of don't care about your authenticity mm -hmm. if it's not matched with like compassion or curiosity for mm -hmm. the experience of others. Right. But if it is, if you have that awareness in you that mm -hmm. like, if I can speak my truth and own who I am and bring that but really do that from a place of what are you really Yeah, feeling? it's such a, I've, I've seen people kind of speaking their truth and just like my my stomach turns because <laughs> it's such a, a, a an abusive, like, well, fuck you way. Fuck this you, is my totally. truth, yeah. you know what? And if you don't like it, fuck yourself. You yeah, know? it's like, wow, okay, great for you, you know? But uh, yeah, I mean, look, again, all behavior is useful in certain contexts and sure. there might be a situation where that's necessary. Yeah. But yeah, the ability to speak your truth, but also like understanding context, you know, um, and, and the right time to speak your truth and when it's relevant and necessary. And just to go back to like the men's group of like being able to share something never shared, I feel like we get an opportunity to process our experience, to bring it into present time because this stuff is buried and and in the shadows and in the unconscious and it's stuck it's frozen. Yeah. And once we start to communicate it, we start to bring breath and life and connection to it and it starts to move. And um I mean, I know I've done my job when, you know, I work, you know, people send me like difficult cases a lot of times, you know, like and they're like, "You sure you want this guy? He's crazy." I'm like, "Crazier the better." You know? <laughs> because to me there's a pol there's a polar opposite that, that exists in the psyche at all times. So whatever we're experiencing, there's always a polar opposite state that exists simultaneously. So if someone's like out of control, crazy, you know, like just a difficult case, but I always know that there's a polar opposite that, that they can yeah. access. And so they just don't have the skill to get there. And if they really want it, because I don't work with people unless they truly are willing to change. 
that's like the prerequisite to, and I turn down a lot of people when I, when they come to, you know, say, Hey, I want to coach with you. And I start getting in there and I'm start looking. It's like, if there's not a real willingness to look at how they're thinking and feeling and behaving and a willingness to change, like I can't help that. Person. How does, man, this is, this is a big one for me that it's, um, how do you suss that out? How do you find out whether someone is willing to change? I can usually just, it's a sense, you know, it's kind of an art form, you know, I just kind of, I can kind of feel it. I'm what like, if, if you were to put words to the the sense there, you know, that we're going to probably stray from the acute knowing that you experience, yeah, but yeah. when you're there, what is it that you think you're feeling? If you're going to try and like articulate what that is and what you, what's missing for you? Well, so there's like a, a couple of things that I do when I first work with someone, um, it's kind of like my process to see if they can go from this state to a new state. Right. And so I had a guy, I got, I was kind of excited to work with him. He was billionaire, owned a big, I'm not going to say the company and yeah. keep confidentiality, but he flew me down on his private jet to North Carolina and, um, fascinating individual. I won't mention any other defining things. I, I try to keep all my client work confidential, but, um, eight hours basically laid out his life story and his traumas and just, there was so much going on. Right. And, um, when I started to do the work and I'm like, okay, great. And we just, I do little things where are they willing to slow down, drop in and can they let go of whatever they're holding on to? And are they open to shifting into something new? And I have this little process that I do where I can see if neurologically they're able to step into something new. Yeah. Um, and he couldn't do it. He was so constricted around his story and his identity. I realized that he needed a lot more work than I could do. He needed intensive therapy, you know? So I, I, I realized that what he needed was like two to three years of intensive therapeutic work. And what I was going to do was only gonna, like I was already getting triangled in his drama between his wife and his mistress. And like, it was, and I started to realize, wow, he doesn't really want to change he's in a lot of pain yeah but he was gripping on and wasn't really willing to make the changes you know and so there was a feeling as i started to even just to have him go in and yeah. start exploring some stuff he couldn't do it you know there was two and look i mean some people need more intervention than others like i've been through many immersive experiences you know five days seven day ten day i've done ten day Vipassana retreats, but I've been in rehab when I first got sober. I've done intensive therapy training, you know, and sometimes you need five, six, seven days, 10 days. Sometimes I've had friends who've gone through four rounds of Vipassana to work through their shit. You know, some people need a lot of intervention. Um, but the work that I do, I like to work with people who have a lot of like internal resources. Yeah. Um, you know, they have a lot of skill and ability and desire they just haven't sequenced it right. They haven't really aligned it right, or they've achieved massive success in their business and there's a piece missing and they don't know what that piece is and they can't access it. And I'm really good at helping people to access that and activate that piece. So I, I like working with people who are just, they just need the flick, you know, they just need a little bit to activate them, yeah. you know? Um, and I've worked with clients who have been still for five years. I still work with them, but some people work with me for a year, year and a half, and they go from, you know, this place to this place. Um, but you know, I want to make sure that I can help someone, you know? So if I don't feel like I can help them, if I don't feel like I re like there's a vibe, like a resonance, yeah. cause you gotta, when you work with someone, it's all feel 
Like I'll never hire someone off a marketing thing. It's like I have to sit with them, feel them and go, wow, when I sit with you, I open. Like I feel an internal change. That's what I want. Like, and that's why people come to me. It's like they feel an internal shift. And then that allows them to go do things they weren't able to do. But they have to be willing to shift in order to kind of to make it work. And if they don't, sometimes I'll refer out. You know, I have a ton of coaches that I refer out to. And I'm always saying it's got to be the right fit. Just got to have the right. It's got to be a right feel in the flow. Totally. When you talk about the shift, it's I remember. Do you know Rich Litvin? Yes. Yes. Rich Rich was on a couple of months ago and he talked about um, one insight about the idea of like you just talked about that, like shift about even when we think about skills training and like telling people what to do and these kinds of things. And um, I had a mentor of mine, um, Arjuna, who talks about the difference between actualization and realization of like the power of, I think, really great coaching that I've experienced it. Like when you just talked about it of actualization is like having someone's kind of like internal resources manifest themselves Mm -hmm. through effort. Mm -hmm. And realization is like the recognition of a more fundamental truth of like who you are or how the world works or like like something that there that just liberates a new capacity to do something. Sure. And I think that that's like opening people up to this kind of intuitive wisdom or other things. I think is so much of that, right. Of like what can just unlock like these, when people talk about like a 10 X shift. Yeah. And it's not because you're doing a lot more, but it's just something new that's there that liberates almost like a, a new or like maybe the real version of you. Yeah, and, and a lot of times what I've noticed is that there's, um, we talked about this earlier in jujitsu, there's this guy, John Danaher, who says that in jujitsu, you might be in like the worst possible position, but no matter where you are in the moves or in the kind of entanglement, you're only two or three simple moves away from being on top. Yeah. And I've, I've noticed that for people, we're a lot closer to where we need to be than we realize. But sometimes one move or one step takes a year or two years mm. to actually get there. It's it's simple, but it's not easy. Um, and, you know, so this idea of shifting, uh, it makes me think about like my company was called Guiding the Shift. And I was working with, um, I know I'm going on a tangent here. I'm kind of like, no, I'm loving okay. it, man. I'm with you. I'm just kind of following the energy here. It's late, you know, <laughs> eight o'clock at night after it. a full day. <laughs> we're set for an hour, but we're flowing. Okay. Yeah. My cognitive go. processing yeah. is starting to no, fade a little bit. That's where you at. And um, so my, my company, the way it was named was when I was doing body work, um, I was working on this woman, Patty Smith, who's a musician. musician yeah. yeah. And she had come in, she had come in uh, for the first time right before her, new year's eve concert and she blew her back out and she kind of walked hunched she was like she couldn't stand up straight and she said to me she said you know i'm canceling my concerts i have three concerts that i do i'm canceling them but michael the guy who referred her to me um said that you could help me and you know she's like but you know i just i don't think you're gonna be able to fix me i don't think you're gonna i'm i mean i'm in total spasm i can't stand i said that's great i'm not in the I'm not going to fix you Yeah. as like, I, I can't cure you, but maybe I can see if we can shift some things inside. And she's like, I don't shift. Yeah. I, I know shifting. I can shift. And so I like had to slowly, it took us like a half hour to get on the table because she was in so much pain. But part of it was like really starting to shift. Like we started talking and dialoguing about some of the stuff that she was struggling with. And we started to shift like, how she wanted to be different and what it would be like when she was. And I started to have her body respond to this future state that she wanted to achieve. 
as I was doing the body work, you know, and something magical was happening because in her internal movie, the way that she was seeing how she wanted to be, her body started to follow. It started to follow that internal imagery and started to embody this. And um, long story short, she actually did those three concerts and was dancing on stage. Mm-hmm. So she went from like canceling it, hunched over in pain to the next day, like best three concerts she's ever had. And she came back and she's like, you know, thank you for guiding my shift. Like I really like I felt that shift internally in the way that she was referencing herself and seeing herself. Um, it's funny because she was the first person and the only person in my 16 years that ever offered to pay me more than what I charged. She's like, you know, I, I want to pay you for like, you saved a bunch of people's incomes and all these people on the concert. And she's like, I want to pay you more. And then she went to go get her wallet. She's like, oh shit, I forgot my wallet. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so she did come back and pay me uh, more, more than I charged, which was beautiful. Um, but this idea of shifting and like being able to, and this goes back to, you know, you were talking about how do we make how do we make change? We talked about centering and opening and releasing, right? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the other pieces is, is leveraging the way the nervous system works, right? So if I picture something that I don't want to happen and, you know, if we do that, we picture a negative event in the future, our body's going to react to it completely, right? We're going to go into this state of panic or anxiety or fear. So we utilize that phenomenon that happens in the body for the positive. So for example, if someone wants to, achieve something a goal right i always ask them like so what's the outcome you want and how will you be as a person once you achieve it Mm -hmm. and then i have them light up all the neurological firings of being in that state you know what are you thinking how are you feeling how are you speaking you know like really embodying as as if it's already happened Mm -hmm. to light up all the neurological kind of patterns right really lighting up the body And then what I realized is that that energy, that state is the state that you want to be in when you take your first step towards the goal, Yeah. right? It's like you're vibrating in the state that you imagine yourself to be when it's completed, Totally. right? And so, but most of us, when we set a goal, we automatically say to ourselves, we don't have that. So I'm coming from a place of lack, disconnection. uh, I'm not enough. I don't have what I want, right? And that's the worst place to start on the path to achieving a goal, right? Um, so this, this kind of idea of, um, activating our end state energy is such a critical skill. And I think would, and really when you talk about actor to, to harp on that, that's like a meditation into the end state, right? Of like, and, yeah, it's utilizing the imagination, which yeah. is our greatest resource. It is the greatest resource. And most of us have never been trained to utilize the imagination in a really practical way. Totally. Mm. It's I oftentimes when I'm working with people, especially on TED Talks or keynotes, always, almost always, one of the last things that I will do with them, it's like before we're finishing and they're moving into like prep mode, is I will have them sit there and I, I will drop them into their body and I'll connect them with their breath. And then I'll say, so where is this talk happening? Mm-hmm. And they paint a picture. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how many seats? What color is the stage? You're the podium. What kind of mic? And so just take them into that room. And it's like, all right. And I want you to fast forward to the last sentence of this talk. And it's like, and I want you to, to be in this place and to say those words 
you know, from this connected place. And I want you to tell me what the audience looks like. Mm -hmm. And it's like, so I have, you know, they're telling me, it's like, you know, they're clapping over there and there's this many people and it's like this loud. And I just bring them into that place. And it's like, you, like we, I oftentimes feel like so much of what we do is because of how we think it's going to make us feel. Mm -hmm. I want to be this kind of like this rich because then I won't feel stressed all the time. Like I want to be loved because then I won't feel lonely or whatever it is of like, because of that feeling. And it's especially where so many people have anxiety before public speaking that that embodied kind of anchor that that's possible now. Yeah. Don't delay it. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. like because if you go in with that, that's going to be the energy that they receive you. Exactly. In, you know, and, and, and you can you can layer in another layer of imagination where, you know, as they're imagining themselves on stage, what is it like feeling grounded and rooted? It might be like tree roots growing out of their feet yeah and like totally. and i do that all the time where before i get on stage like i imagine these cords coming out of my heart and plugging into everybody's heart and that makes me relax knowing that i'm transmitting and communicating from my heart to their heart yeah you know so you can utilize the imagination to create states yeah. to create feelings and to create a sense of connection totally you know? and so i there's a, probably a couple more questions that i want to let you out of here because i want to let you go back to your family but um so one, how about can we do two final questions? Sure. Cool. Beautiful. Let's see if my brain can. This, this one I know you'd be good at. So okay. is that you, you just, um, it, it feels to me like you, like, again, you just love this work. You take it very seriously that you've studied with so many incredible people whose names, you know, I recognize. And so I'm curious who would be one mentor or teacher that has just significantly influenced you and your work that might not know it as much as you really appreciate them who comes to um, mind? first person that comes to uh, my mind is probably my son how so um what's his name Jaden. Jaden. yeah you know it's interesting when he was first born i remember being in the delivery room and you know thinking that i had an open heart and it wasn't until he was born that I realized like my heart was like one one hundredth of what was capable. You know, I think his being in my life has really broken my heart open, mm. really allowed me to um, come to terms with my own mortality, which I haven't never really, you know, if I'm like, oh, I'm a Scorpio, right? Death, it's all good. But now it's like I've got this little guy, you know, and now it's like, really coming face to face with my fear of death, you know, and I don't really necessarily fear death, but it's like his mortality, my mortality, yeah. like when I'm laying next to him and I'm putting him to sleep, knowing that, you know, at some point he'll be off in the world, you know, and he'll be gone, you know, and feeling that sadness at the same time as feeling this depth of gratitude. And he's really taught me how I can have multiple feelings simultaneously. I can feel deeply, you know, this deep sadness and loss as well as this love and appreciation at the same time mm. i don't have just one feeling it's like how do you feel great sad so happy sad <laughs> i'm like i feel that all the simultaneously all the fucking time there's so many threads of emotion but he really allowed me the capacity to hold these paradox these these kind of like contradictory states of like complete loss and complete connection at the same yeah. time complete love and fear at the same time like and he's allowed me, the, he's really taught me how to hold um, and be mindful of how I'm embodying 
and modeling what I'm doing, not with just what I'm saying, sure. but the energy that I carry because he models me. Mm. And so he's like the beautiful reflection on how, what, what am I teaching him fundamentally in terms of values by how I show up in the world, by how I communicate, by how I respond, by how the person who cuts me off on the street, how do I respond to them? Yeah. You know? And so I want to, like, he's really been my greatest mentor and teacher. To Jaden. Yeah. I love you'll that. Wait till I mean, wait till your little boy gets like five, six, seven. Yeah. And then eight, they're like, you know, they're on you. Yeah. They know your shit. They call you out on your stuff, you know? Totally. Like, I, I'll I, be on my phone. He'll come over and push my head. He goes, look at me. Yeah. Put your phone down. Like he'll boom, he'll just go right in there. You know, I just I just got uh, it's sitting right here, but I, I just got a new iPhone, the one with like the spider eye camera on the back, and I got a yellow case because I find it to be very ugly, and I don't like holding it, and it's also because I know that he can see it, mm. and because I don't want to be on my phone when I'm yeah. at him, and I notice yeah. how much I am, and so I purposely did that. But again, that I that constant, I think that even it's probably for both of us, but in intimacy for me, it's like you know how much I value growth and having my wife who holds me accountable to that. And even with a son, which non-verbally again, on such a level is just going to model what you do. And in that there's such a reinforcement and awareness of my own behavior. Yeah. That's just like, I, you know, the idea of like a forcing function in math. Sure. It's like, I, I think of them as like my forcing function. Yeah. I wrote her a poem. I was like, you are my forcing function yeah. you know, to be my highest self. And so, you know what I noticed too with my son is that, so going back to the men's work, right, is that when I first started men's work, when someone's like, it'd be like a Tuesday, and it's like, hey, you want to go out on Saturday? I'm like, I don't know, let me see how I feel. And so everything was based on how I felt, whether or not I wanted to do it or not. Mm. And what I realized, having a son and also my wife too, but it's that when I'm committed to something, I do it whether or not I want to do it or not, whether or not mm. I feel like doing it, whether I'm tired. It's like, if I commit it to you, I'm not going to bail on you because I'm tired. I'm going to commit to you. I came here, you know? And it's the same thing with my son. There are many times when I could sleep in, I want to just put, go under the covers, but I got to get him up, got to get him to school, got to make him breakfast. It's like, whether or not I feel like doing it, I do it. Yeah. And and it just helped me connect to what am I committed to? What am I, what are my values? How, you know, how am I, how am I a man of my word? That's a huge piece. Cause he'll always say, you told me you were going to do that. You didn't do it calls me out anytime i don't do something i say i'm gonna do yeah so again he's been my greatest mentor wow man and i just i i love even when you said like that piece about commitment of it just hit me of like i have this this relationship right now that's a friend who's been a real best friend for a long time and we're going through this dynamic shift mm. of not being a, so so much love one of the most important people in my life but just a, a shift in our relationship and uh it's interesting where both of us have a very strong community. And so there's not like a need for social connection, but the, the extent to which we like depended on each other without acknowledging it, mm. you know, emotionally mm. and how that distance that we experience. But the idea of that commitment just resonates for me again, of like showing up in the relationship, even when it's not commit, like when it's not maybe fun yeah. or easy because yeah. it's that important. Sure. And yeah. you can even look at that in relationships. So yeah. like there are times that I'm exhausted and tired and I don't really want to have sex with my wife at that moment. I'm just like, I want to go to sleep when I get up at six. I want to wake up and when I, you know, exercise, this is 10 years of marriage. Right. But it's like, there's a commitment to connection, yeah. you know? And it's like, you know, I'm committed to that connection space. Right. And, Beautiful. and I don't want to reach out and say, I'm sorry, 
but I'm committed to being the person who's responsible for the olive branches and making sure that the relationship doesn't go into this resentful, disconnected space. Like, yeah. even though I don't want to, I, I still am committed to it. It, it drives totally. my behavior. Yeah. You know? Could I, can you share what you told me about? I, I after our last session, I kind of I asked you about your sexual connection with your wife and what you said really stuck with me. Can you share that? Wait, wait, I remember what about was the fountain of youth. Oh yes. Yes. Well, she actually brought that up too, where we were looking into some of the Tantra work Yeah. and how, you know, it is like sex is like a fountain of youth, especially in marriage. As we get older, it's like, it's life force energy. It's creative energy. And you know, by not, and, and I've noticed that even in our marriage, not having sex, it starts to get, our relationship gets edgy. It gets a little bit, there's a little bit more elbow in there. And I notice that when we're making love and when there's an intimacy space, there's more fluidity, there's more lightness, there's more energy, there's more flow, there's more creativity. And uh, yeah, we were just kind of framing the sexual energy as like, like I think Montauk Chi even talks about sexual energy being like the real secret to the fountain of youth. Yeah. Because if you can take that sexual energy and flow it through your body, yeah. you know, it rejuvenates the cells. It brings light and energy to to everything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So final question. Uh, you know, something that I loved, even when you you texted me today and you said it's like, let's just let's just go there. Yeah. And we'll drop we'll drop in. And it just I I read through that digital communication like an assurance. Uh, like a, an inherent, like a self-trust. Right. I'm like, I'm going to show up there and it's all good. Yeah. I got this. Yeah. And I'm really curious about number one, like, do you trust yourself? Mm -hmm. And if so, like when, when did that happen and how does that persist? And trust myself in which contexts, right? Like, do you, you know, like I, I almost like, I guess, because this is kind of a relational dynamic of like, with do you trust yourself with other people? Like even when I saw you facilitating, oh, right, right, right. you know what yeah. I mean? Like, do you trust yourself yeah. in the way? Yeah, I mean, and, and when, I think- When did that really start to happen for you? When oh, you started to get that? You know, it's so it's interesting. Like, so the first thing that's coming to mind is in January, I, I switched to a new jujitsu school. Yeah. And in my old school, we never started on our feet. We never did takedowns because yeah. I was always like, I have three herniated discs. I don't sure. want to mess my neck up. So we always started on the floor. In this new school, it's a, comp it's a competition school. It's essential jujitsu, JT Torres, top guy in the world. Yeah. Everybody start, they started fighting, sparring, standing up. So you had to do takedowns. And I was completely scared. Like, and it took me like three months before I really felt comfortable and I needed to develop the skills. And now I feel very confident on my feet when I spar with someone, doesn't matter who they are, because I have the skills. And I think that I needed to learn the skills on how to fight on my feet before I felt like I can trust myself, right? So I think it's experience, it's skill. Um, I mean, there's no, there's nothing that's gonna take away experience and doing the reps to really feel a sense of trust yeah. in yourself. And I think, you know, um, one of the things, it's funny, one of the things as a massage therapist, again, I've retired now, like almost eight years from massage <laughs> therapy, but when I was doing it, um, yeah, I'd meet someone, a woman would come in and they would talk to me for 30 seconds and I have to get naked on my table. So I had to develop a space where they would feel comfortable yeah. in being able to kind of relax on the table. Right. And so I think that just hundreds and thousands of experiences of creating a space and learning how to hold my energy in a way that people just go, ah, oh, 
I can tell, I don't know why I'm telling you this. I'm just boom. And then they would just start telling me everything. And it just, it's just from all that experience of being with people and creating a space for them to drop and be open and feel safe. Mm. That's, I think it's just experience for me. And then, you know, now, so now it's, I'm confident. I guess apart from confidence, I trust myself going into new experience because so if you look at the tarot deck, the first card of the tarot deck is the fool. Hmm. It's and so the fool is the precursor to the savior. And I learned this actually, this is like a core young thing. And so if you think about the first card of the tarot deck is the fool. In order to start the journey, you gotta be the fool. Hmm. And so I'm at the point in my life where I'm willing to pull the fool card to start something, to try it, to get some experience on it, to learn it, to develop, to grow, to master to become boom, you know, and that, and I, and so no matter what I'm doing now, I have more of a willingness to go, okay, I'm going to be a fool in the beginning. I'm not, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm open. I'm willing to learn. What are the fundamentals? I, I learn differently now. I'm going, okay, what are the concepts here? What are the fundamentals? What are the forces that we're fighting with? And then once I understand the concepts, then I can start applying, you know, and, and activating whatever I'm doing. Yeah. Like I learned how to snowboard in five days. I went from like <laughs> green on day one and we were doing double diamond glaze on day five. And all it was, was I was willing to kind of like, oh, and I also watched a lot of YouTube videos before I went. <laughs> so I learned through watching a lot of YouTube videos. Yeah. But now my wife and I, we off piece, you know, we go hella skiing and like, and that was like in a five day span. Yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm good at learning now because I'm willing to kind of just surrender to it and, and listen and watch and learn. Um, sounds like you're always learning now with the mindset that you have. Well, just, it's interesting because you know how they, it's like the cliche. It's like the more, you know, the more you realize you don't know. Sure. It's like, I just, there's so much I don't know. Yeah. I, every day I walk in and go, wow. Like, I mean, every time I think I know I get smacked in the face. Well, then, and you what know. you said earlier about like, again, that idea of removing bad and good from your lexicon of just, is it useful? Is it useful or not unuseful? Yeah. And ultimately, most of it is if you have the perspective you, and, that it can be, right? Well, and also, I think there's a skill of utilization. Can yeah. we utilize everything that's happening, you know, utilize it and and let it grow and develop and, you know, take us where we want to go? Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful, brother. Well, like, again, like one-on-one and how to move beyond the, the desire <laughs> to have such a firm you know, idea coming in here, but ultimately getting to it. Of yeah, just like I mean, a, we didn't prepare model. anything. We just sat down and jammed and just started talking, which but I, I appreciate you coming with an open, because I know you like to have a clear idea, but you're willing to come and jam. And I really appreciate that. And, and it's know? also because it's like, as I've seen it, it's like there's, there really, even as I've, you know, been a part of it here and as I've witnessed it of again, like this, this idea of really becoming present to, to what is mm. and the, the skills that someone can build up to to utilize that to integrate that mm. for new insight new creativity new energy it, it like decreased anxiety yeah you know this level of of like owning your experience for you know whatever it is that you desire is really beautiful man and it's been uh, a pleasure to to yeah, sit here and, and deepen and uh for people who are curious about your work 
uh, whether that's in coaching or retreats or men's work, what's the best place to keep up with you online? You know, we're going to be putting some new stuff on my on my site. Like I said, I don't. You can go to my site. There's a bunch little stuff up there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like the best kept secret in coaching. Someone told me the other day. It's like you know, no, how, do you, how do they people find you? I'm like they just find me through referrals. Yeah, that's how everybody finds me is totally. introductions. Um, but I, we we are putting a training together um, based on this core blueprint that yeah. I put together. Andrew Kippen and I are, he's helping me kind of build out the frameworks. Who's an amazing gentleman. Yeah. And, um, so it'll be up on my site, johnoconnor.com. Yeah. And we'll, and, um, yeah, we'll have everything linked in the show cool. notes and is there something else. Um, uh, that's the training program is going to be in March and we're going to actually have two evenings, like open evenings to come and explore the work. So Beautiful. it'll be like one for coaches and facilitators and one for business leaders. So yeah. we're kind of separate the two utilizing a lot of the principles, but you know, one for coaches and facilitators and others for who are leading teams needing to kind of step into a new way of being to lead their organizations. So yeah. we're going to do one specifically for them. Beautiful. So. Well, everyone I know who has spent time with John O'Connor has wanted more John O'Connor. Yeah. And I'm from <laughs> oh, in that great. Camp, so thank you. Thank you, brother. It's Dude, been an amazing pleasure, chat. Man. Thank Loved you. It. Thank All you. All right, guys, signing off. We will see you next Cheers. time.